Welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. We bring you free-flowing conversations with top thought leaders in philanthropy and the nonprofit sector. Sit back, relax, listen and enjoy as we share ideas and discuss topics that are important, timely, and we hope will transform the nonprofit world. Hello, and welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. This is episode 24, recorded Thursday, January 17th, 2019. I'm Vincent Duckworth. I'm a fundraiser and a partner with Vitreo Group. We are a national agency focused on bold leadership and transformative fundraising. In this episode, our third of 2019, we are joined by Marianne Kerr, founder and principal of the Medalist Group, Dr. Jody Abbott, president and CEO of Northwest College, and Siobhan Doherty, a plan-giving officer at Dalhousie University. This episode is also our first podcast with a guest host. My business partner and colleague, Andrew McManus, will be hosting this episode. Our topic, Women in Philanthropy. Join us as we hear from three amazing nonprofit leaders and fundraisers, all of whom have experienced as women working in and with philanthropy. It's time for the Brain Trust Philanthropy Podcast, and welcome to Episode 24 of Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by The Trail. This is our third episode of 2019. And uh, for those of you who are wondering why I don't sound like Vincent Duckworth, it's because I'm not Vincent Duckworth. I'm Andrea McManus, and I'm a partner with The Trail. And I am just thrilled to be the first guest host we've had on our Brain Trust Philanthropy uh, podcast. Our uh, podcast today, our topic today, is women in philanthropy. And we have three amazing Canadian nonprofit leaders with us to, to, to uh, have a conversation about this today. I'm excited to be here. They're excited to be here. So let's get started. First, uh, joining us from Halifax, Nova Scotia, and back for her second appearance on the Brain Trust Philanthropy Podcast, we have Siobhan Doherty. Siobhan, first joined us for our episode on Millennial Giving, which we posted last July. Welcome back, Siobhan. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, when we last visited um, with you, you were living and working in Calgary, and since then, you've moved back to Atlantic Canada to work at Dalhousie University. Um, so can you share with us a bit more about what you were doing with Dalhousie and why you made that move? Yeah, I'm originally from Halifax, Nova Scotia, so people joke there's some kind of homing beacon in us Maritimers that if we can get home, we we do. Uh, an opportunity opened up to do planned giving work at Dalhousie University, and uh, it was presented to me, and I was really excited to be able to get back to my hometown and do some fundraising for an institution that's helping our drive our economy, so young people like me could stay in the province and work in the province. So I am taking over the planned giving program at Dalhousie. I've been here since September. It's been a big whirlwind, including buying a house <laughs> and moving in. So I'm excited to be back. Definitely miss Calgary and the team at the University of Calgary, but uh, it's always nice to be close to family. For sure. And as a, I'm a fellow Maritimer, so I, um, I'm i very familiar with that uh, homing beacon that uh, draws us past back there all the time. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so thanks for that. Uh, next, joining us from Toronto, we have uh, Marianne Kerr. Uh, Marianne, this is your first appearance on our podcast, so welcome, and um, it's nice to have you. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. It's my first podcast ever, so I think oh, it's going to be a lot of fun. That's yeah. great. <laughs> it's going to be a lot of fun. Oh, we love your husky voice. <laughs> oh. It's awful. I've been drinking lots of non-caffeinated tea with honey, but uh, it's not doing a lot. Yeah. 
So, Marianne, you um, have had senior positions with a number of um, female-related um, organizations, women's-related organizations, mm-hmm. the YWCA and the Canadian Women's Foundation. Um, you've got your own consulting firm with the Medalist Group. And um, you also, I see in your bio that you're the past chair of Gilda's Club of Greater Toronto. And in our earlier call, you were telling us you've just joined the board of a very interesting organization. I think you said it was called Next Gen Men. That's Um, right. Can you share share a bit about that and why you became involved? Sure. Well, you know, first I'll just touch on Gilda's Club a little bit. I was the founding executive director back in 1999, and so... I really love startup organizations. I think, um, you know, they, they tend to be a little cutting edge. They're looking at an issue from a perspective that's maybe just a little bit different, a slightly different um, point of view that, that's looking at, uh, in that case, cancer care and emotional and social support and all of the things that the hospital really doesn't have the time or resources to manage. And it's a flourishing organization that I'm I'm really thrilled to be involved with. Next Gen Men has just been around for about four years, um, founded by a fellow named uh, Jake Spica and a couple of his associates uh, in Calgary, and they uh, create safe spaces for men and for boys to talk about gender issues. So, you know, they want to they want to allow men and boys to learn what it is to be a man in a in a world that supports feminist principles. So it's a really cool organization and and youthful, which I like too. It keeps me young. Did I lose you? No. Oh, good. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, that that sounds really quite fascinating and, and very timely for sure. Yeah, so it's thanks, really Marianne. good work. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Marianne. And our third guest today, um, joining us from Edmonton, is Dr. Jody Abbott. And Jody, this is also your first appearance on our podcast, but not your first time on a podcast, I understand. So, welcome to you. Thank you very much. Uh, very pleased to join you today and really looking forward to this topic. Yeah, terrific. And Jody, you have a really interesting and varied background from figure skating to CEO of one of Alberta's uh, most important educational institutions, Northwest College in Edmonton. So we hope to hear more about that journey later in the podcast. But for now, can you share with us how you got involved in Olympic level figure skating and what your role is with the organization today? Sure. Um, certainly, um, as a young person, I was a figure skater. I wouldn't say I was a great skater, but I was a mid-level skater. And um, I was always taught uh, by my mother that when you get um, involved in something, you also must give back. And so as um, a young person, I started judging when I was 16. Um, and um, have stayed um, involved, very involved in the sport, worked through the process of uh, garnering my certifications to be able to judge at the world and Olympic level. And I feel very privileged to have judged uh, two Winter Olympic Games. And I think beyond the judging, it's how uh, I've been involved with Skate Canada as the organization, both having been on the board and now involved in a couple of uh, operational committees. And it's a great organization. Um, it's a place where you certainly learn about gender issues um, in the world of figure skating. Uh, it's also um, an opportunity to travel internationally, but also understand different 
cultures through that, and, and that's been a really great bridge to my role at Northwest College. Wow. That's, uh, that must be uh, a lot of fun as well. <laughs> Sounds it, great. It certainly is. Okay, um, so let's get started. Thanks, uh, to, thanks everyone. Um, uh, thanks for joining us um, on this podcast, our 22nd, um, and we are talking about women in philanthropy. So, um, you know, I've always known that women played a much larger role in philanthropy than I think um, we've generally been given credit for. Um, I think that, you know, a lot of our um, our efforts as fundraisers is uh, are, are based on um, you know speaking to to men um, rather than more so than women. Um, but in the last two two three years, women have become much more visible as a driving force in philanthropy. They're making bigger gifts and they're getting the credit for it, and they're giving more and they're and they're giving differently. So Jody, um, let's start with you. Uh, have we as women actually started to be recognized for our role in philanthropy, or is there more to do? Um, I, I think the answer is yes to both. Um, I do think that women are being more recognized for their role, and uh, certainly our experience at Northwest College with our 1,000 Women and Million Possibilities movement, um, we started that movement to ensure that women saw themselves in philanthropy um, and that uh, we could step back from thinking every time we asked for a gift for something that was important to our institution and our community that it didn't always need to be the man that we were asking. And what we found through our experience is that um, oftentimes if we were talking to um, a, a gentleman, what would happen is he would go and have a conversation with his spouse, partner, friend, who often was a woman. And so what we've really tried to do is heighten the role of women in philanthropy. So I do think that we are, uh, we are, are moving. Do I think we have more work to do? Absolutely. Because I think that, um, you know, there is still a perspective or a perception maybe, um, that maybe women don't have as much to give financially. Um, and I think one thing we need to do is uh, we need to us through that, and it's no different from, you know, can women lead at the top? Um, that work is ongoing, and I think that we need to push through those barriers in positive ways by showing outcomes rather than in just talk. I, th I think outcomes um, are everything. Hmm. Marianne or, or Siobhan, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, sure. I th uh no, you go ahead. Go ahead, Marian. No, you go ahead first. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think it really depends on what kind of donor we're talking about. I think for a long, long time, when you're looking at broad-based appeals, you know, direct marketing and, you know, now whether that's through traditional modes like direct mail or, or online, we've always recognized that that base was very, very much um a woman donating, you know, an older woman generally, a, a well-educated woman generally, all of those kinds of uh, demographics and psychographics were at play. I think we're starting to see it, um, it's been elevated in terms of, of larger leadership donations, and we're, so we're seeing it there. We even had a, a school, Concordia University, had an engineering school named after 
um, a woman who donated there. So that was a, I think that may even have been a first in Canada. So I, I think it is happening. Um, and, and I think, but I think it's always been there. I think that you alluded to that, uh, Andrea. And I think many of us who have worked in the field, particularly in the leadership gift area, we've always looked at that as a, a kind of a family gift, right? It's not, it's not that one individual was ever really making those very significant gifts without that kind of conversation. So when we're training, uh, young, young people or new, new folks into the industry, one of the things we talk about, uh, in our courses is to say, you know, it's, it's all, you always invite the family, the partners, um, uh, when you're having that kind of conversation right from the beginning. Um, because they want to be part of the solution, right? They don't want to just make a gift. So I, I think it is happening, but I think it was also always there. Yeah, I, I agree that it was, you know, as long as I've been in this field, um, we've always said that, you know, um, make sure that you, you're, you're talking to the couple. I think what we're seeing, though, now is a shift in, in um Maybe not who's the primary person, but not as an afterthought, but as 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 more a general way to um, to actually do it. And there's you know there's an organization uh, I referenced this in a blog that we wrote recently. Um, the Charities Aid Foundation of America mm-hmm. has done some research into women's impact in philanthropy, and uh, you know according to their statistics, women give 3.5 percent of their wealth compared to men at 1.8 percent. So it's almost double that. Um, Siobhan, what's your experience? What are you finding? Uh, this? Do you work in the planned giving field? So that yeah, so uh, planned giving is a little bit different, and I mean, I come from a major gift background, but um, working in the planned giving sphere, it is such a family conversation right off the bat. It's not. I find in major gift giving, we still have a lot of work to be done. Where we often meet with one individual donor or prospect, and we bring their family into the conversation soon, but not right away. Um, but planned giving is such a family decision, especially if a couple has children, and we want everyone to be comfortable with leaving an estate gift and making a lasting impact and memory. Um, so I find that a lot of times I am working with actually the women, um, especially if they, it's a heterosexual couple and the the man has passed on sooner. I'm working with a lot of women in their estate planning. Um, so I think it's a little bit more unique, and we're seeing women really want to make that impact. Um, and especially do things in honor of their spouses, which is really exciting and interesting work. It's so how did, oh, sorry, Andrea. Go ahead. Go, no, go ahead, um, Jody. I, I, I think it's very, very interesting because part of what I've just heard is there are certainly nuances, whether it's major gifts, plan giving, et cetera. But I also heard Marianne say something very interesting that I think this is what I heard you say is that um, women want to be part of the solution, and certainly that's been our experience that um, it's not, um, the gift is not, what, however it comes in, um, generally speaking, I see it is the gift is not only a financial contribution. It is something much greater than that, and um, we've seen that in, um, you know, various initiatives that we've done that um, women see the opportunity to give as being able to um, uh, add 
vibrancy to their community, be a solution for a challenge that's out there, um, to be able to move the needle on something. And so I see with women an incredible connection um, that tends to happen, certainly it, in our experience at Norquest, that it becomes a connection to um, the the person who's the recipient at the very end of where this gift goes. And so it, I find that that's a very interesting nuance. Yeah, I, I agree. And yeah, I agree. And I think that I think you did uh, you did hit on it. There, there's an organization I'm not sure you're aware of. In um, it, it's founded in the U.S. called Women Moving Millions. And Women Moving Millions is only about, I think it's 10 or 12 years old. And what they do is they encourage women philanthropists to pledge, uh, kind of like the giving pledge, but to pledge um, a minimum of a million, but most of them do more. And in the space of that 10 or 12 years, they they have 300 uh, women members who are who have pledged over $650 million, all to initiatives worldwide that support women and girls. So... The work they do is very much about working with those individual members to say, what is the impact you want to have in the world? What's the change you want to see? And then helping them, advising them, really. Um, so they're not raising money for women moving millions. They're raising money for the, the women's sector worldwide. And it's a very cool, cool approach. And I think you see well, a unique approach, too, with – oh, sorry. Nope. I think I think you see a unique approach too with things like uh, 100 Women Who Care, where women are bringing in and pitching organizations that they're already a part of. They're moving the needle in their own way, where maybe they can't make that major gift at this time, but they're volunteers there and they're dedicated and they're pitching to other women to bring their collective pool together to make a difference uh, philanthropically, which I think is very unique and kind of to the point that women want to see the difference that they're making and be connected to the cause. So you're all talking about, um, 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 I guess, um, motivators that are more specific uh, generally to, if that's not an oxymoron specific, generally to mm-hmm. to women. Um, how are you, given that um, a lot of the uh, private wealth that may change hands in the coming decades and, and is considered to likely be going to women, and there was a recent, um, recently the Economist reported that, uh, that the women's wealth has risen globally as a share of all private wealth, um, from 34 trillion to 51 trillion. And by 2020, it's supposed to be, they're projecting it's going to be more in the vicinity of, of 72 trillion dollars. Um, so that's a lot of capacity to make change. So how are women are you fi- how do you find women's decisions on where to give different than than men perhaps? Well, I, I would agree with uh, what Jody has said. I think it is, um, and I'm not sure that it, I, 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 you know, we talk about philanthropy not being transactional. But if I were to make a comparator, and and I'm I have no science to support this. It's purely based on on my years in the in the sector to say that. My experiences with men have been more transactional, not to say that they were bad, but they were more slightly more transactional, whereas with women, it takes longer, it's deeper, and it's coming from a really personal place. Again, only my experience. So 
I have found that you're having conversations that are, um, you know, really going into the depth of who they are as people, their their family background, where they came from, um, what their mothers and grandmothers, what was important to them, how life impacted them, you know, where they are today and how those women in their lives brought, you know, made, made the life that that person is living today possible. So it's very, and I like the word nuanced, it's very nuanced and it's deep and it, it, it leads to wanting to have it again, have an impact and make a change. So that's the biggest thing. I think I think it takes longer, but it's really deeply meaningful. Yeah, and I would add, and again, this isn't based on um, scientific data. Again, it's more experience. If I think of, um, you know, donors that I've been involved with at the college, as an example, that um, I have had more situations maybe where um, a male donor um, will indicate, I'd like to make a donation of X amount, and college, you will decide where you best need it. So it'll be less directed um, giving, mm-hmm. um, but for example, our, our board chair, Dr. Ann Colburn, just made a, a million-dollar donation to the college to establish the Colburn Institute of Inclusive Leadership. And the process of um, uh, and giving was very much tied to purpose, and it was very tied to you know here's some some really important thinking about how inclusion can shift and change and open the minds of society. So it was very tied um, to something critically important to her and to us. Um, versus, um, you know, uh, here's, here's the dollars, um, and you know best what to do with it. And, you know, I, again, it's, it's not science, it's just my experience of what I have seen in my eight years at the college. That's a, that's a great, uh, that's a great piece of information, um, Jody. Uh, thanks for sharing that. Um, I was just looking, um, Marianne, you mentioned this organization, Women Moving Millions, and so I just, I just brought it up, and uh, there's a, a fabulous quote that I, I, uh, on, on their impact page um, by uh, one of their members, and it says, uh, I love it, it says, uh, making my million-dollar gift was like jumping off a cliff and then finding out you can fly. <laughs> wow. Beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that great? I, I, yeah. <laughs> Um, so, so how do, have, have, do any of you have experience or have your organizations actually, um, implemented strategies to specifically connect with women and how might they be different than, um, you do with, with men? Or is it, is it that, um, is it that, is it that intentional? Yeah, it's, um, I, I will talk about our 1000 women a million possibilities movement and just give you a, a little bit of history. Um, what happened mm-hmm. is we had a, we had a women's mentoring group that mentored, um, uh, young immigrant female students. And, um, what happened is through the mentoring experience, they noticed a gap in emergency funding for, 
um, our students. So, you know, we had students who were couch surfing because they couldn't afford the damage deposit, et cetera. So this group of female mentors said, um, we have, we have a high, uh, female population, student population in the college. So they said, what can we do as a group of women, um, to support initially female students? And it, it's certainly grown beyond that. And so there, they had really two uh, two main objectives. One is how do we create an endowment fund um, that can support our students. So it's very purpose-driven. And then the second thing, their second goal was how do we encourage women to be involved in philanthropy. And it's been really interesting because we've done three campaigns um, uh, regarding this. And we've seen, um, and it's been very purposeful, very uh, very focused on women involved in philanthropy helping female students. And it's, it's really been interesting because, uh, the drive, the push to, to do community-based work, but also, uh, to, to move to, uh, truly major giving. Um, and what's been fascinating in my role is to watch the advisory members, because they're all, um, uh, volunteers from the community. And we've had three different advisory groups go through the, the, our, we're now in our 10th year. Um, and it's really been wonderful to watch the evolution of these female leaders in the area of philanthropy. Some who are very young who really, well, what is philanthropy? What do I do? What, what does this, uh, what's my role? To now seeing them lead, um, the initiative. So, um, that we have been very, very specific about it, and it's really interesting this year for the first time in the ten years we've added um, uh, a male to our advisory committee and I can tell you it was a conversation to get there and so what's happened is this group has matured to the point to say, you know what we we need um, we need a guy on the committee because we we have a certain perspective. And maybe we're missing an alternative perspective, and we we can further our overall cause if we actually have a little more balance. Um, but it took a lot of conversation to actually shift that. I love I love that. I think that's great that you guys were able to come to adding a male to your committee because I. There's a lot of research done in the space that more diverse groups in the workplace or volunteer groups actually make more of an impact and have different viewpoints. So I think that's fantastic that you guys have branched out and added a male to that committee for female fundraising initiatives. Yeah, I agree. We, uh, we, when I was with the Canadian Women's Foundation, one of the things we did, I mean, the, the vast majority of our donors were women. Um, I, I would venture to say about 98%. Um, and and uh, one of the things we did in terms of stewardship was um, a salon series. So we were going across the country. It continues, but we, we go across the country and we we just have conversations. There's no ask involved, and we we have a discussion about you know what what is what are we're, what we're doing, but also what's happening in your community. What are the organizations that are being funded? What are the issues that are um, are being dealt with? And one of the things we noticed uh, last year was that we kept being asked. At the end of, of every conversation, someone would say, well, what are you doing for men and boys? Um, and so in the next iteration of the conversations, we involved uh, Michael Keeler, who's the chair of masculinity studies, 
uh, at the University of Calgary's uh, Workland School. And um, and he became part of our conversations. And um, it was fantastic. I mean, he's a feminist, right? I mean, he's, he's talking about um, o- opening up, uh, you know, new ways of thinking for young boys and young and young men and, and older men as well. But um, it, it created a totally different um, environment. And I think people appreciated that, it, you know, it, feminism is not about uh, not liking men. And it can't we can't achieve gender equity without making changes that are systemic and, and involve men as well. Right. So I think it's fantastic that that happened. Yeah, my experience yeah. at the Dalhousie and the University of Calgary has been a little different. There's been a lot of really great initiatives targeted on the campuses towards women, getting women more engaged and more equity. Um, but I don't, I haven't seen strategies around fundraising specifically towards women. We take a great approach at Dal. Um, a lot of our work comes from the work of Jim Langley, who's one of our consultants right now. Um, to do really one-on-one personalized major gift fundraising and planned giving fundraising and getting to the heart of what's important to that donor and making that impact. Uh, and I have to say, a lot of our fundraisers are really good at doing that no matter what the gender is. They're, they're looking at the whole picture, the whole donor, their family, their connections, and what matters to them and not necessarily the gender of the donor. So a little bit different. You certainly see lots of um, lots of giving circles and that sort of thing, and I think that they they are effective and do work. Um, and actually, was doing some research on them a while back, and they've been around for way longer than I had. I think I think it was to the 80s, really late early 80s when they first started. Um, they've just gained a lot more steam um, because the research says women like to give uh, and participate in a community as part of their giving. So. You know, you look at UNICEF, you look at the Toronto Community Foundation, um, you look at Women Moving Millions, these are all, or YWCA Toronto, they all have some version of this where the women are coming together, not just to talk about what they're doing, but to learn from each other about what's worked and what hasn't. And it's creating a much richer uh, community of, of philanthropy, women in philanthropy because they are learning from each other. That's uh, there. So, do you see that as different, uh, um, Marianne, or new? Do I see it? Oh, I think it is. I think you know one of the things I, I and I think community foundations have been really good at it in general. Um, that they they make an effort to bring donors along on a, a bit of a, a learning journey, right? I would say that. Um, women, for instance, who are giving to the community and women's foundation, at least at what we would have called a major gift level, they're, they're quite sophisticated as donors, but lots of others are coming into it without a lot of knowledge around philanthropy at all. So I think it's a, it's a big trend and I think as organizations, it's incumbent upon us to do work in the area of, of learning for, for, for donors. Because I often think what's happened in our sector, so, you know, we talk about recognition and the fact that if you walk down uh, University Avenue in Toronto, where all of our hospitals are, you know, you see one man's name after another, and that's awesome, right, and it's great, but we kind of created that as a sector, right? We said to people, give us this money, and in return, we will do this, right? I mean, not just well, the impact piece, but we'll put your name on a building. And so we created, uh, and, and there were lots of good reasons for it, but I think there's a bit of it that's backfired on us now, right? Because 
um, that became, it became it, we sort of created transactions around donations because even though you were giving that money in order to do something at a heart institute, right? The the recognition piece became so big because you couldn't drive by it without noticing it. And it so I think we've done it. We've done it to ourselves a little bit. So I think we need to be much more intentional going forward um, about what philanthropy will look like. Mm-hmm. I also think when you, we talk about, oh, I was, I was going to say when we talk about um, the recognition names on buildings, at least for me um, as a donor, it it makes it hard to place myself in that type of philanthropy. And if that's what I see that organizations say is valuable and those level of gifts and the names on the building, it's hard for me to place myself there when all you're seeing is, mm-hmm. for the majority, white, old, rich men. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's, that brings to mind an interesting story um, that I heard actually uh, in Halifax, Siobhan, was, was uh, Isaac Walton, Walton Killam, who the hospital is named after and many other things, was famously um, did not give any money to charity. And when he died, his wife gave away a huge amount mm-hmm. of money and put his name on a whole bunch of things. Just <laughs> <laughs> I guess to to communicate a message to him, even though he had he had passed away. Um, and now we might we might see the the woman doing that in her in her own right. So, but Siobhan, you mentioned that um, you know working in in the major gift field and and really paying attention to the specific donor, so less gender related, and just really listening um, to that donor, regardless of of. Um, uh, what gender they are, but um, so do you? Do you are you aware? Do your do your fundraisers find any differences in working with women uh, donors over be, compared to men male donors? Do they take? Do they find them more altruistic, or are do they take longer to make decisions? I mean, Jody, you kind of mentioned that um, that process is being. Um, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but perhaps deeper with um, with women. I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure they do. And I mean, my position at Dalhousie crosses um, all the faculties, and I work with each of the fundraisers. They all have very different styles, and I'm sure they have very different stories, each of them, about which gender behaves in which way. Um, but I think what we're really trying to do, you guys were speaking about earlier, um, it, it takes longer to build that relationship with women, and it may take longer to get that gift, but we're trying to, they want to get connected. Um, what we're really trying to do is get all of our donors connected on that level and invested on that level because we think it'll make for a better philanthropic experience for them. The outcome will be better for us. Um, and I think we'll be able to get more philanthropy in the future if we have that deep connection regardless of gender. Um, so I'd say we're, I, in my opinion, um, we're kind of taking that model of engagement that we see with women that they're they're asking for when they're making philanthropic gifts, and we're trying to apply it to all genders to get everyone that invested when they're doing something philanthropically at Dalhousie. And I I agree with you, Siobhan. I think that, um, for example, at Norquest with our 1,000 women, we've created a vehicle to ensure the development of that relationship. I think that we want to see that deep relationship with every donor, regardless of gender. But I think it's also an interesting question for us, 
certainly one that we need to ask ourselves at Norquest is, we have done the 1,000 Women Movement. Now, why don't we apply the principles of this in, you know, this incredible, incredible fundraising vehicle that we've developed? Why don't we take those principles and apply that um, across genders? Because I think as an organization, we'll be, we'll be better for it. Not only will uh, we have a relationship with the individual and, you know, hopefully that turns into a, great, a greater level of giving, we also know that we will have more ambassadors who will tell our story and will help to build our brand. And so it's, for me, it's a little bit of when you have something that, whether it's in our employment field where we, we work really hard to recruit a certain type of person, we focus on that and sometimes we either forget about the other pieces that are also important, um, or uh, we, we, we just don't transfer the learnings we've had to something else. And so I, I, I think this very conversation has been, you know, incredibly helpful in terms of me just saying, hey, let's, let's really step back because at the end of the day, we want deep relationships with, with all of our donors. Um, it's important to the health of our organization. It's important to learn from them, et cetera. So, um, it's, it's a good kind of, hmm, let's, let's step back and look at this. Yeah, and I don't know about you guys, but I, I always feel like it's my responsibility as a fundraiser to, in the major guest sphere specifically, and plan giving to get people that connected to where they want their philanthropy to go. And if that doesn't fit with what the priorities of Dalhousie are or University of Calgary or wherever I'm working, uh, it's still my responsibility to ensure that that donor finds a place to give their philanthropic support that they're going to be just as excited about as I am. So I think that's important to keep in mind while working with your donors. Yeah, that's so great to hear because to me that's, you know, open source philanthropy. At the end of the day, if, if the project or the, the, the work that we're doing doesn't fit with the donor's needs, then we want to help them to find the right place to do that. Um, so I, I'd love to hear that. Hmm. So those are some great uh, uh, comments. Um, you know, there's – what we're really talking about is is just – if we're talking about philanthropy as opposed to fundraising, one of my favorite topics, and looking at it from a philanthropic perspective and, and really um, listening to what our donors, male or female, are, are, are telling us. Um, so if we were doing it, if we're really doing it right, um, there shouldn't be a question of gender. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's true, and I think part of what, you know, uh, I, I'm learning a whole new dictionary. I had never heard the term cisgender before until I came to work at the Canadian Women's Foundation. So, um, you know, I, I think we've all, so we, we've been talking really here about men, people who, who see themselves as men or people who see themselves as women. So there's, you know, the whole concept of gender fluidity. And, and in this community where I live in Oakville, we have the 100 women who care, and we have the hundred men who care. And I think there's something in it because sometimes we just want to hang out with the, the gender we identify with, I think. I think there is something in that. Um, but then I also really believe at the end of the day, it's just a hundred people who care, right? A hundred people who care mm-hmm. and, and more, hopefully. Mm-hmm. You know, coming from uh, Calgary, we've seen, I've seen a lot of uh, campaigns in the past where um, you know, the, the 
the uh, male community leadership, um, you hear talk about the quid pro quo. So, you know, I'll give X dollars to your organization if you give X dollars to mine. Um, that's never very good philanthropy or never, never very good practice in my mind because I think you, you probably end up leaving, you know, a, a gift on the table. But it strikes me that that's less, probably less, um, appealing to women to give that way than, than it might be to some male business leaders. Would you, do you think that's correct? Well, I'm happy to comment on that because I, I, you know, my experience has been primarily with feminist philanthropy and feminist philanthropy is all about, you know, um, breaking down the traditional kind of power relationships that exist sometimes in a traditional philanthropic situation where, um, you know, I, there is an element of, well, there is, there's a power relationship. And in fact, I think we've been hearing a little bit about how those power relationships have gone wrong for some of us working in this industry. Um, and feminist philanthropy is about collaboration. It's about, you know, this is not about which organized organization gets it. It's not about, you know, ego related to the person involved in the ask. And it takes an intersectional lens, you know, on the work. So we're never, we're not ever just thinking gender. We're talking race. We're talking about sexual orientation. We're, we're talking about all of those things. So, I, I, I don't know. I, I guess I think that that we've created a we're creating a new world um, around what philanthropy can look like, um, and and I I think we need to name it, and it should be called feminist philanthropy. Hmm. I like that. Um, you know, there's been, <laughs> this has been a great conversation, and um, the. I referenced uh, uh, the blog series that um, um, we authored, uh, The Provocateur, um, at the beginning. And there was a lot, we had a lot of, um, a lot of information, a lot of content. And, and so I think that this topic um, is much bigger than one podcast. Maybe we need to consider doing a series on it. And it's interesting how our conversation about women in philanthropy is really mirroring the changes, the great societal movements that we're seeing this day, to these days, and in terms of everything from Me Too to gender fluidity and, and you know, the, the real change in inclusion and diversity that's happened in what that actually means over just the last, uh, last couple of years. So, um, I want to thank you all. Um, you've been great guests. Um, um, Jody and Marianne and Siobhan. Can't wait to have you back on our on our future podcasts. Um, but before we go, I uh, just want to give each of you uh, the chance to tell us a little bit more about what you're working on and where the best places that folks can reach you if they wanted to follow up and give you some more information, get some more information from you. Marianne, anything you want our listening audience to know? Well, sure. First, I want to say happy International Women's Day tomorrow. Because uh, you know, for me, it's the it's the biggest day of the year. Okay, maybe the <laughs> IWD is a big one, um, and uh, I'm hoping I I'm hoping that people will think about celebrating themselves or a woman that matters to them or a girl that matters to them um, by giving to organizations that are working in that sector. And one of my current favorites, I love I love YWs because they're they're coast to coast to coast and worldwide. But the other one I really think is making a difference uh, 
in Canada is, is an organization called uh, LEAF. It's the Legal Education and Action Fund because they're looking at um, how to make a difference systemically. They're looking at um, ensuring that our rights as, as girls and women are um, are taken care of in the legal system and, and the human rights uh, charter and so on. So I'm, I'm really focused there, and, um, and I'm looking forward to having a great celebratory day tomorrow and, and wish you all a happy International Women's Day. Ah, excellent. Thank you. Siobhan, how about you? So um, you guys can, anyone can reach me on LinkedIn. I'm happy to connect. Um, it's Siobhan and uh, Doherty. I'm with Dalhousie in Halifax, Nova Scotia. So uh, right now I have been hired to do planned giving for the university. So it's kind of a new vision for that team. They're doing some really great work in that sphere. We have a lot of uh, great expectancies. So I'm working across all the faculties right now, and every faculty seems to have a new and exciting initiative uh, around entrepreneurship and innovation and experiential learning. Um, and it's really exciting to be doing work to try and help our students be trained and enter the workforce um, and have more chances for jobs and hopefully ones that keep them in Nova Scotia and continue building our economy here. So happy to connect with anyone. Thanks so much Terrific. for having Thanks me. Thanks so much, really Lon. Thanks. Thanks so much. And Jody? Yeah, I mentioned um, Norquest College's 1,000 Women um, campaign. We're in our third campaign, and um, Norquest College is really about um, uplifting our society by ensuring that everyone gets access to education. And uh, our campaign that we're just working on closing out, uh, which will be celebrated at our luncheon in June, um, provides bursaries uh, to students who are self-funded learners. So this is ensuring that we remove barriers to education. And it's both bursaries for childcare um, bursaries. So we have the 1000 Women Child Care Center. And so this allows for uh, subsidizing daycare, which is critically important to removing barriers to our students uh, to getting the education that uh, they so much want, need, and really allows them to be participating members of our economy. Um, you can reach 1000 Women at 1000women at norquest.ca, and I'm also available through LinkedIn. I think this has been a, a great, great conversation, and I agree that we need to continue um, to, to talk about this topic. Excellent. Thank you so much. And, uh, all, and thanks to all three of you. Um, I think that, you know, we, we all in our sector and um, we need to um, pay attention to the, you know, what we what I like to refer to as the rise of the female philanthropist. Uh, I think it's part of democratization of philanthropy and that there's a lot of opportunity um, for organizations that uh, that get it right. So thanks for all your um, great conversation today and your great tips and your experiences. And with that, our gift of another Brain Trust philosophy, powered by the trail, has been committed. Well, that's about it for this episode of Brain Trust Philanthropy. I hope you'll join us next month when our topic will be diversity and inclusion, gender, sexual identity, accessibility, ethnicity, and more in the nonprofit sector. Joining us as guests will be Kieran Dalliwell, Emma Luzzi, and Martha Schumacher. We look forward to talking with you next month. Brain Trust Philanthropy is powered by Vitreo and is produced by Lauren McMurray at Alchemy Communications and by me, Vincent Duckworth. 
Brain Trust Philanthropy is recorded in beautiful downtown Calgary, Alberta. Follow our show and engage with fellow listeners on Twitter at Powered by Vitreo. You can subscribe to Brain Trust Philanthropy on iTunes or by visiting our website at vitreogroup.ca. Wishing all of you success in your mission, peace in your lives, hope in your hearts. I'm Vincent Duckworth. Brain Trust Philanthropy is powered by Vitreo and is produced by Lauren McMurray at Alchemy Communications and by me, Vincent Duckworth. Brain Trust Philanthropy is recorded in beautiful downtown Calgary, Alberta. Follow our show and engage with fellow listeners on Twitter at Powered by Vitreo. You can subscribe to Brain Trust Philanthropy on iTunes or by visiting our website at vitreogroup.ca. Wishing all of you success in your mission, peace in your lives, hope in your hearts. I'm Vincent Duckworth.